Welcome to Chaplain Stories, sacred stories from the front lines of ministry. My name is Chaplain Caleb McCary, and we are going to be talking to chaplains about their stories, living out their calling and ministering to military personnel. I'm so glad to have you joining us as we talk about faith, life, and ministry with our guests. All right, well, welcome to Chaplain Stories. I'm Chaplain McCary, and I have a very special guest with me today. Uh, just by way of disclaimer, I want to remind everyone that any opinions that we give here are either mine or the opinions of my guests. They in no way represent the official policy of the Army. And so, sir, if you would uh, introduce yourself and tell me what position that you're currently holding. I'm Chaplain William Tripp. I go by Brad uh, and I am the uh, Brigade Chaplain with the 2nd Infantry Brigade Combat Team, 3rd Infantry Division. And also my Brigade Chaplain, <laughs> so hence my very special guest today. Well, as, uh, as we get started today, I know that you've spent uh, a good bit of time in the Army. So what did you do before becoming a Chaplain? Well, the military part uh, started when I was 17. Uh, I enlisted in, at that time, the split option uh, was brand new. Um, I was the first, I uh, was in the first group that exercised the split option. And what that meant is you could go to basic training between your junior and senior year in high school. And I did that with the Florida Army National Guard. I went to basic training in June of 1980. Uh, and then, um, trained with a guard and a reserve unit uh, through the next year, through my senior year, and then went to my first AIT, um, came back, was, you know, in the guard, did some college, which didn't end well. Um, <laughs> I wasn't ready to go to school yet. Um, and then eventually in, in 1982, I uh, decided to go on active duty. I left active duty in 1987 and immediately joined a reserve unit, but worked at the Cape uh, in Florida as a program security director, uh, among other jobs that I held out there. Um, yeah, for the, the chaplaincy, um, I had preachers in my family, and uh, my, my grandfather, I uh, had two uncles, um, and uh, I started seminary after one of them had, had passed away. I became very close with him. Uh, during his sickness, and uh, I guess he just encouraged me. I went to seminary, and uh, and then 911 came up, and uh, I had I had bid on a job to be a a, a professor at a college. I was going to teach theology, and that sort of fell through. And I, I long story. Um, so then 911 came up, and I was looking at going back in. And found out there was a big shortage of chaplains, and and it was a very natural fit. It was uh, wow. That's putting. I'd been a soldier. Most people back then that knew me um, said that if you cut me, I would bleed O.D. green. And then I'd gone to seminary, and it seemed like a pretty good, pretty good fit. I mean, putting the two together, and that's pretty much how I ended up here. 
So before 9-11, had you given much thought to the chaplaincy? Was that ever something that was on your radar? No. No, quite honestly, the very first uh, time I thought of, of that, I was, I, I was actually not allowed to go. I was given a job, but it was in a country um, in, in Eastern Europe, and I was not allowed to go there. And while I was working, I was deciding whether or not to appeal or go through the appeals process. Um, 911 came up, and our house was, was hit by lightning just a few days after that. So we were living out of a hotel and spending time. Um, through my seminary and college time, I had my idea was I was going to go teach somewhere. I'd go teach at a college. Uh, and then the house gets hit by lightning, so we're living in a hotel. And so spending a lot of time at my parents' house eating, <laughs> you know, it's hard to cook in a hotel. And and, uh, and Sunday after church, you know, family dinners and such, and the men folk are sitting there discussing politics. And um, I, I remember vividly my dad picking up a newspaper and reading an article that there's shortages and that soldiers are going downrange without a chaplain. And and I knew. Uh, I mean, this is Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, I was talking to a recruiter uh, who got me in the accessions process. And when was that? Um, well, um, let's see, the house was hit by lightning. Um, it was just a few days after my dad's birthday, which was the 23rd of September, so I think 911, maybe two weeks later, uh, house is hit by lightning, maybe a week after that or so, uh, was when the first time I talked to the recruiter. Huh. Uh, and that was the first inkling I had of being a chaplain was literally my dad picking up a newspaper and saying, hey, I think he probably said something like, hey, boy, um, you know, there's a shortage of chaplains in the Army. And then I knew, you know, in my mind, I was going to go be a, I was going to go teach at a college. And then the second thought was, after nine one one, was, hey, I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go with the boys. And and I was using some contacts, uh, knowing that my name, I was still in on the reserve rolls. I was telling some of these uh, commanders I knew to to put in a by name request, and then I would go. Um, and then. My dad picks up that newspaper and says, hey, there's an article here that says there's units going down range without a chaplain. And I knew. So the next, the very next morning, um, talked to a recruiter and started the process. And it, it took about a year. Um, I, I came in and I actually started active duty in January of 03. Uh, I commissioned in November of 02. So, yeah, I mean, it was just like right out of year for the accessions process. And that's funny. Uh, January 03, you, you become a chaplain. January of 03 was when I went to basic training at Fort Knox, <laughs> Kentucky. Yeah. Back before I was a chaplain. That's cool. Yeah. So you're having this conversation with your dad about, uh, you know, coming to the chaplaincy. So, so what does the rest of your family think about you? Uh, pursuing this calling? Uh, you know, a, a, again, great, it, it was a natural fit. Um, I had been a soldier uh, since I was 17. Uh, I loved soldiering. Um, 
had a lot of had several diff, several MOSs, um, and I I think they saw that it was a really good fit because I'd been in seminary and I was preaching, I was an associate pastor and and doing these other things, and and it's easy to see wow that's that's you know when two worlds <laughs> collide, um, but there there was no and and you know the, the war uh, in Afghanistan and and. There was never really any, any like uh, trepidation. There was never it. My my family, on my father's side, came across the Atlantic on a Mayflower. Uh, and every war that we fought, we've had people in it. So, being a soldier is more of an expectation, and so that made the fit together even better, uh, or even more natural. Um, you know, the wife was like a little, a little worried, a little um, anxious. Let's say, um, you know, it's a whole brand new thing. We'd become very comfortable working out at the Cape. Uh, both of us worked out at the Cape, and and it was a, a pretty easy life. Uh, and and now you're going to charge off, and you're, you know, we're going to leave yeah. these two great jobs that we could work in the rest of our lives and retire from and live the easy life, and we're going to charge off into this. Who knows? Well, and you think about what's going on in the world at that time. Obviously, you've got Afghanistan, and then what happens just a couple months after January of '03? Right. In March, uh, the war in Iraq starts up, and uh, yeah, yeah. I remember that vividly because I was still in basic training, and our drill sergeants through the PA system uh, had piped in audio of the invasion yeah. while it was happening. Very surreal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just as an aside, um, I stand back in, in awe of, of people that committed after 911. You know, in setting this up, you I've heard you say several times that, you know, these guys that serve before 911, uh, and, and that it that it's interesting, or they might have a different perspective. Uh, I stand in awe and great respect of anyone uh, who came in after nine one one. That's 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 something right there. Um, during a time of war, I got respect for that. Uh, you know, my military career started. We still had draftees. Uh, the draft wasn't active, but there were still guys in the service that had been drafted. Um, to have a war start up and then have people sign up, that's pretty amazing. I got a lot of respect for anybody that signs their name after, you know, in that, in that context. That's, that's something. So. Well, you said you got started in January 2003. What was your first unit? I was supposed to go to the... Um, the MI, the 513th MI Brigade, uh, I had, in an, in an interview with the installation chaplain at Fort Gordon uh, during the accessions process, he asked me if I'd be willing to participate in Finders Keepers. Um, chaplain Brewster was his name. He was the installation chaplain. Neat man. Uh, neat guy. I really loved him. Uh, he asked, I remember him turning to me and saying, 
Yeah, well, everything looks good. Uh, would you be willing to participate in Finders Keepers? I had no idea what Finders Keepers was. And I said, sir, I'll participate in anything you want me to participate in. And uh, I remember him smiling very broadly at that and uh, saying, okay, well, I'm not really supposed to do this, but if I get you, and he goes to his big board, you know, the Manning board and where all the chaplains were, and um, he said, well, I looked at your background, and I think you'd be a good fit for one of these battalions in the 513th. And I said, sir, I'm like Forrest Gump. My job is to do what you tell me to do, and I'll go wherever you tell me. And I started Chobik, which is now what, Chobolik, I guess. I started Chobik in January. Of course, the invasion started in March of 03. And the 513th scooped everybody up and went to Iraq. I still had orders delivering me to Fort Gordon. So when I got there, they told me, hey, uh, you know, your, your unit's gone, so we're putting you in the 447th Signal Battalion. And uh, I remember asking, did I do something wrong? You know, I, you know here's this MI unit that uh, I, I have some experience in that field. And, and uh, uh, wow, you know why? I'm, well, because they're gone. And, and TRADOC is a high priority, and we have a fill. So I went to the 447th Signal Battalion, which is part of the 15th Signal Brigade, and that was my first uh, first assignment as a chaplain. And you said that was a TRADOC? It was. It's a, uh, it's a Signal AIT training uh, battalion. And a lot of fun. Couldn't have, couldn't have asked for a better... For the first assignment, it doesn't get much better than that. Well... I want to ask you about some of uh, some of your background, some of your experiences as a chaplain. What was the most physically challenging thing <laughs> that you've done as a chaplain? Uh, I mean, there there are many of those short duration. Uh, you know, seeing what you went through, I saw the storyboard on getting the spurs. I think it is and. You know, and, and, and I'm I'm familiar with those. They're they're those big but short overall, comparatively. They're the short duration. Uh I think being in Alaska uh with with an airborne unit um was overall the longest. Uh it was always it was every day, it was and it wasn't just obviously just not the cold, uh, but it presented many challenges where you don't think about it um you know one day you jump and you land in my, my first jump back after almost 20 years and and i'm i'm thinking well i'm gonna get hurt i'm gonna get hurt i'm gonna get hurt and i hit the ground and i landed in a big shell hole that was filled with snow so it was this stand up the only stand up landing i've ever done in the military and uh, i'm like man this is this is easy this is great stuff so i started jumping more and more and and one night a big windstorm came through and blew all the snow off the everything in Alaska is a big plate of ice with varying degrees of snow above it um, and it had blown all that snow off that ice and I hit so hard I, I, I would bet to this day you could read a credit card imprint, imprint on my on my posterior uh, and, and then you pick up a ruck that is as big as a house because in Alaska you got so much extra gear you got these humongous rucks and then you got to run in three foot of snow, you know, with this, and plus your parachute and everything, and, and then you're going to go ruck on ice. So it was like this day to day to day 
Uh, that was probably the most physically demanding uh, because it did not end. You uh, you didn't recover from the slam that you took on the ice today, and then you're ruck marching the next. You know, you never got a chance to recover. So that was probably the the hardest physically, uh, the hardest time physically that I've had. And how long were you there in Alaska? Uh, well, 29 months in Alaska, um, 28, but 15 of that was in Iraq. And then um, I didn't really see Alaska that much because we were always, you know, we did a rotation in JRTC. We did six weeks someplace else. It was just, didn't get to see that much of it. But, you know, on, on paper I was there for 20, I think eight months. What was the most spiritually challenging thing or event that you've experienced as a chaplain? Um, you know, there's um, there are several uh, things that I look back on. Um, and, and when I look at that, when I consider the intent of that question, is, is it like spiritually like challenging to my own personal spirit, that thing that, you know, somehow I keep going, or is it uh, places where I've been where it seemed like there's some oppression or, you know, any number of ways to describe that. Uh, there was a day um, we lost uh, lost some soldiers. Uh, they drove a big bomb uh, underneath an overpass, and we had some guys up on top of it using sensors looking up and down MSR Tampa. And um, one of our casualties was a young man named Adam Harold. Um, nice young man. Um, got to know him pretty well. He would always come by my tent and he throw these questions out there, these you know deep uh, questions you don't expect from such a young man. Uh, nice, nice guy. Uh, he was killed, uh, and and this this huge overpass went up in the air and basically came down and buried three of our guys in tons and tons and multiple, probably thousands of tons of rubble. And um, we went out to go try to recover them. And uh, we had wreckers that we string in cables trying to pick up roadway and so that we can get to our guys. And uh, uh, Greg, as he went by, Harold, um, didn't have a mark on him. It was very dangerous. Uh, we, we were under sporadic fire, uh, but it was obvious that, you know, these thousand-ton pieces of concrete could come tumbling down Soldiers kept trying to get in to help, and myself and a medic and another guy kept trying to push him back. And we finally worked our way up into rubble and, and got him out and carried him down. Um, and and when you say, what's the most spiritually challenging? Um, we, we, we put him, I did the, the ministrations uh, for these three soldiers. Um, and got everyone accounted for. We had the convoy lined up, and uh, the soldier comes over, and we put the three bodies in the back of a Bradley. And uh, one of the soldiers comes to me and says, Hey, sir, we, we got, you, got you a spot in one of the 
one of the gun bees up front. And I'm looking around, and all these soldiers are looking at me, and they're looking at the bodies in the back of this Bradley. And I, I don't want to unnecessarily complicate this or, or drag it out, but uh, there had been some... Um, uh, they, they had sent some folks out to come get me and bring me in, and I refused to go in. I, I kept saying, no, we're going to bring our, I'm trying not to become emotional for this. Uh, I had said I wouldn't, that, that I'm, I'm going to help bring him home or something like that. So these guys are looking at me and immediately I'm thinking, they're, gonna, they're, they're seeing if I'm a man of my word, you know, uh, that I'm going to bring our boys back. I'm going to be with them. Well, here they are in the back of this Bradley. And I'm looking in the back of that and this soldier's waiting to take me up to that seat they kept for me in a, in a Humvee and uh, I said no I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride with our with our guys and you close up the back of a Bradley and it's it is hot I mean hot it was so dark I couldn't see my hand in front of my face and I've got three body bags there with me and uh, that was probably the most spiritually challenging moment I think I've encountered um, that being said, when we when we pulled up and we lowered the ramp and I started to run out <laughs> and luckily stopped myself and made it look like I, I think that they they took it like because I, I I said hey let's let's get our boys out you know and got some guys with stretchers uh, to take them in and more um, and I, I don't think anybody realized how how you know pent up I was or how. Hmm. But yeah, that was uh, that was a personally challenging moment, and and there there there'd been some others, but I think that one that one stands out. Um, yeah, yeah, I would think that was it. Uh, one of my follow up questions is usually, what was your toughest day or event? Uh, do you have another uh, another one that yeah, would qualify for that? Uh, January twentieth, uh, two thousand seven, uh, we lost. Um, Lost a bunch of guys. I lost five uh, from my battalion and uh, close friends with pretty much every one of them. Uh, one in particular was Jacob N. Fritz, Jacob Noel Fritz. And I met him as a second lieutenant. And the worst part was right before we left, his mother had come up to Alaska. And uh, very devout young Christian man. Um, I had chased him down the hallway once with a with a bayonet. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, or maybe now maybe I should explain. My my daughter uh, and my wife were coming in the gate one time, and he was with another lieutenant in the other lane. And uh, I found out that they were talking like, "Man, look at that two beautiful women over there in that car. Let's let's stop and get a date with them and everything." And so we set him up. I sent another officer down to him and. Said, hey, do you realize that car with it, it was the chaplain's wife and his youngest daughter? And he got all freaked out and he was scared. And so I was I come out of my office with a knife and he took off running and it was a funny thing. But I, I told his mother, she said, take care of him. And uh, I said, Yes, ma'am, he'll be all right. Um there was a uh uh some I've heard it was uh Iranian Quds forces uh got GMCs got American uniforms uh, in Karbala and 
came into our security site and uh, killed one guy outright. Um, killed another one in the uh, uh, as they entered the building and then kidnapped three of our guys. Uh, as they were leaving, uh, feeling the pressure of the pursuit, uh, they stopped and killed all three of our guys. And one of them was Jake Fritz. Um, and then plus we lost in my brigade, I think that day, I think it was, I think it was 20 total, thir it was at least 13 total that I remember. It could have been as high as 20, but that was a really bad day across Iraq. Um, and uh, Captain Freeman, Brian Freeman, uh, I remember the, um, uh, the angel flight. When they found him, he was still alive. And, uh, you know, you don't you don't risk helicopters for somebody that's already deceased. And they were in flight, and I remember hearing on the radio that uh, the people on the ground said that uh, that he'd expired. Uh, and the uh, sorry, the helicopter pilot should have turned around. You don't risk helicopters. As harsh as that sounds, that's reality. And they decided to do it anyway, so they went in and picked him up. And uh, they had gotten a call as they were bringing him back for another medevac somewhere. And um, they basically just had to dump Brian's body out of the out of the helicopter. He was a he was a captain, CA guy, um, West Pointer. Uh, I think he was like a world-class athlete in, I don't know, something like biathlon or something. A neat guy. Amazing young man. Um, beautiful wife and family. Uh, they basically had to dump his body out of the helicopter because they had to take off immediately. Uh, and then they picked up Jake, uh, brought him in, and we loaded him on a helicopter. And uh, that was that was one of the uniforms that I had to burn that night. You couldn't take your uniform and throw it away because they would get it out of the dump and they would put it on and use it to infiltrate. And, and uh, so that was, uh, that was another bad day. I won't say bad, um, but it was, it was a tough day. It was another uh, challenge, let's say, spiritually. And, you know, and I've been a soldier Sometimes it's hard not to, you know, I, a few times I thought back then the crosses were velcroed on. I thought, man, man, that thing will come off and I'll just go join the infantry and, you know, get some pain back. And that's, that's not right and I would never do that. I, and and that's not my calling. It's not who I am either. But, yeah, it's it's hard sometimes, you know, um, you know to the, hold on to that. When those... Those people who you love and you care for, and you know, yeah. know their families, and mm -hmm. and, yeah. and you, it's a it's a very very human emotion, very human to feel that way. Yeah. Well, sir, let's turn the tables a little bit. Um, what would you say was your most rewarding day, <laughs> most rewarding event uh, as a chaplain? Well, I, you know. First, the um, the baptisms, the weddings, the 
And as you know, the soldier that comes in and is coming apart like a cheap suit, and you know, you, you're there for him, you, you give him some advice, some counsel, and a week later, a year later, uh, you know, sir, thanks. Uh, that's that's rewarding. That's and that's the day to day. Um, for one event, uh, is a guy named Pinkerton, uh, specialist, and and it, it was we were downrange. And it was I was downrange with the Alaska unit, and we we were losing guys right and left. It was a very very bloody, uh, it was a knockdown drag out, and. Pinkerton comes into my office, sir, can I see you? Yeah, come on in, sit down, what's going on? And uh, he had heard me pray. Uh, I try to get on at least, you know, out of a seven-day week, I try to get on at least three or four days of patrols, uh, at least one patrol per day on those days. And um, he so at the patrol brief, you know, a bunch of guys standing around in a circle, well, uh, I'd, I'd pick up a Bible and I'd, like read Psalm 91 or read one of those passages of, of comfort and confidence and then say a little prayer. And, uh, and Pinkerton heard something. I don't know what it was. That's up to God. But Pinkerton heard something and he comes in and he goes, Sir, my, you know, my life's coming apart like a cheap suit. And we talk. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was kind of like, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe in a God. And I remember I asked him, or I told him, I said, well, you know, I don't. <laughs> I remember vividly that look of confusion on his face because he's seeing the cross and he's like, well, you're a chaplain. You, you have to. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I don't believe in a God. I believe in the God. I believe in the God that creates the entire universe out of nothing in an instant by merely saying it. That's my God. That's omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and that's the God I believe in. I don't believe a God is any one of any number. Uh, uh, well, how do I get that? And I said, well, maybe you should consider how you're approaching him because let's say God created you and, and he created to love you and he created you to enjoy him and enjoy each other and and. And, and commune and, and have that perfection and your response to him is, well, you're something out there. You're any one of any number. You're something. I said, if you created all the universe and you created you and your response was that, what would you do if you were God? And I remember him saying, oh, I'd squash me like a bug. And I said, well, maybe you should approach him with a little bit of awe and wonder and if a general walked in here right now would you stand up yes sir so you'd show respect yes sir maybe you ought to try approaching God that same way okay sir what do I do I said well maybe you go back to your chew when your roommate's gone I said you get in there and you close that door and you get on your knees and just talk to him let's talk to him Tell him what you're thinking and what you're feeling. I said, just start. Start a dialogue with him. Really? Yeah. You think he'll respond? I'm pretty certain of it. And I remember it's like two or three days later, this guy comes in and, I mean, his, his 
his smile was like the corners of his lips wrapped around his ears. It was so big. His eyes are wide, but he's got tears streaming down his face. And I'm looking at him, and I'm, I'm hoping this is a good thing, you know, and I'm like, you know, a little anxious. That's Pink. We called him Pink. His name's Pinkerton. And matter of fact, on that commercial, I don't know if you've ever seen that commercial I'm in, but there's a picture of me with him, and that was Pinkerton. Um, and he says, uh, I, I said, hey, you, you okay? And he says, I did what you said, sir. Just like that, too. I did what you said. Okay. You all right? He says, sir, and I hope, I pray I'll never forget these words. He says, sir, it just stuck. Okay, uh, I think that's a good thing. And he's crying now. And he says, yes, sir, it's a very good thing. So well, come on in, let's sit and talk about that thing. And um, he'd given his life to the Lord, laid out in his chew, you know, on a dirty floor. And, and uh, we talked about it. And I'm like, well, that's cool, man. And, and he says, uh, Sir, I got to get baptized. I'm like, uh, okay, and we're on an unimproved site and whatnot. So we ended up. I, I had some some spare wood I got from the KBR guys. Um, we had a fuel bladder that got blown up before, uh, I think, before we'd ever put any fuel in it. And uh, so I used it as a liner. We built a little baptismal. Had a fire truck. Had the fire truck come over and fill that thing up with water and and. Uh, baptized him like a week after that that was the uh, as a particular you know and chaplain related I mean the birth of my son that's you know that's over the top but uh, Pinkerton hmm. Pinkerton that was the most rewarding I guess um, yeah it's it's very neat how even in the middle of you know the chaos and brutality of war that God can use that time to open those doors in people's lives yeah. that might they might never have otherwise mm -hmm. asked that question of you. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this, sir. What do you love most about being a chaplain? You've been doing it for a few minutes now. What do you love most about this job? Well, on, on the one... Uh, have you ever seen the movie uh, Chariots of Fire? Mm-hmm. Okay. And Eric Little, in one scene, is on the side of a mountain. I'm probably putting different scenes together and whatnot. That happens when you get older. But um, He's talking with his sister, and his sister says, you know, you're all about running. It's all about running. And um, I'm, I'm afraid that you're forgetting God's calling, God's purpose in your life, or something worse to that effect. And, and he says to her something like, this is a bad paraphrase, forgive me, but this is what I took from it. Um, he says, you know, God not only made me, but he made me fast. And that's the way he said it to you, fast. And sometimes when I run, I feel his pleasure. And, and the gist of it was his running was something that enabled his ministry. Um, and I... I I love that, that sometimes your God puts us in that place, I believe, uh, and somehow, despite yourself, you say just the right thing and a Pinkerton walks in. Um, that's pretty cool. I love being a servant. Um, the word minister, 
That's what it means to serve as as if a slave. And and I love serving people. Uh, I I I love being that that guy who hands a, a guy who's cold and tired and you hand him a cup of coffee. Or, uh, you know, just being a servant. I love that part. I love being there. And sometimes, every once in a while when I do it, I feel his pleasure. And that's pretty cool. So, anyway. <laughs> well, as a, as a brigade chaplain, one of the things that you do is you supervise... Uh, <laughs> battalion chaplains. So, you know, you get the opportunity to to talk to some guys who are brand new to the chaplaincy. What would you want to tell uh, somebody who's brand new, just starting out, just starting to try and figure out what this calling looks like for them practically? Uh, probably two things, and. I remember as a as a young soldier um, waiting in a very long line at, at, at the supply sergeant's window and and this supply sergeant and you know back then the army was a little different, a little rougher and uh, a lot of abuse handed out and we were all standing in this line and they're yelling at him and yelling at all of us and different things. And uh, when I finally got to the window, there's this litany of curse words directed at me. Um, and uh, I looked past him, and on the wall was this poster. And it, it was some kind of a creed-type thing, and it said, I will never forget that the person who's come to see me, or who's come here to see me, is a warm human being with wants and desires and hurts and feelings just like my own. Uh, and it goes on to talking that, that same vain and it finished with I will never forget that this person is not an interruption of my job they're the purpose for it uh, that would be the first thing um, I think chaplains above all others and I think by definition uh, our soldiers are the purpose of our job our purpose is not so much the direct uh, engagement in the protection of our country, our purpose, although that's, we, we serve in the forces which guard our country and our way of life, but particularly and individually and corporately, those soldiers are the purpose of our job. When they come to our door, uh, when they're cold, when they're hurting, when they're tired, whatever it is, they're not an interruption of our job, they're the purpose of it. Without them in that context, the Army doesn't need us. And, and the second part of it is, is much like that. Um, we have to earn the right. And I think if there was, if I only got one thing to say, other than love on soldiers to that brand new chaplain, if I only get one thing to say, it would be earn the right. Um, you have to earn the right to minister to these people, especially these young people. They do amazing things. They sign their name uh, in an enlistment during a time of war. That's, that's worthy of respect. Um, we have to earn the right to talk to them. When you, uh, and, and 
is any number of analogies we can or metaphors that we can create sitting in a tent um, when you have a soldier that says, hey, I, I'm really scared about going outside a wire today. Uh, I, I got a feeling my number's up. And, you know, how do you respond? Well, <laughs> hey, I'm just glad I don't have to. You know, you, you don't go getting on patrols just to get on patrols, but you need to endure those same hardships and dangers um, consistent with your ministry, consistent with the the climate, the context, the environment that you're in. Um, but you have to earn the right to talk to them. And that means many things. And I'm not just talking about the physical dangers. Uh, that means we train. That means we constantly try to get better at what we do. Uh, those soldiers are deserving of the best spiritual leadership there is. And I think that's a truism. Uh, it's our job to provide it. Just like an infantryman has to keep going to the range to make sure his skills are, are at, at least maintained, if not getting better. They should constantly be getting better, learning new things, learning better things, learning other ways. Uh, I think chaplains need to do the same thing. We have to earn the right uh, to talk to these people. They come in our offices and they sit down with us, trusting us. Um, I told some soldiers this weekend they we, we, we were skydiving and, and they asked about me doing tandems and, and I said I've got, I sit in awe of somebody who, who walks in off the street who doesn't know me and they pay an exorbitant amount of money to, to put on a harness to get strapped to me to have me jump pull them out of an airplane with me you know, not knowing me there's a great deal of trust in place and, and I think the same is true Perhaps on an even grander scale, uh, you get a soldier that's got spiritual questions, eternal questions, uh, and I think we need to train and earn, be worthy of, of, of that trust they place in us. Well, you experienced the military uh, and the chaplaincy for, for a while. But what do you see, looking at your past experience and looking into the future a little bit, as you look in your chaplaincy crystal ball here, <laughs> what do you think are some of the, the biggest challenges that face the military chaplaincy in the future? Well, uh, the low-hanging fruit there, the obvious one, uh, changes in culture. Um, you know, it's, it's getting, in some ways, it's getting harder for us to minister to soldiers. You know, many people speak of a decline in the, in the church, a decline of the church, uh, etc. So that's obviously a great challenge. Um, I, I think another one is, um, and maybe it's a product or a manifestation of that cultural change, uh, chaplains, I remember chaplains being labeled as being the truth agent even at the beginning of my military career we have to understand the grievous and great responsibility that places on us and we need to understand it takes a great deal of, of courage uh, moral let's call it courage of, of uh, you have to be that one guy in the crowd who has the requisite guts to say uh, that's not a nice new set of clothes that dude's naked 
and that's unpopular, and I think it's becoming more unpopular in, in some ways, in some cases. Um, and we have to maintain that. That's something we can't sell. Commanders depend on us for that. And whether or not it's difficult doesn't change the fact that commanders depend on us. Um, and, and I think another thing is, uh, um, you know, I've seen articles written and I've seen exhortations written within the chaplain corps. Um, speaking of, ensure that you get that seat at the table. Make sure you get the seat at the table. Make sure you're engaged and involved. And and that's difficult in, in many ways, but I think most of all, because there's a balance in there. Um, you know, there's that passage that speaks of, you don't go into the banquet and take one of the best seats. Uh, you take a bad one and get invited up because that's better than getting thrown out, you know. Um, there's a balance line in there somewhere, and I think maybe, and I don't have the answer, uh, but I think maybe, maybe we concentrate more on earning the right, and that'll end up in us being invited to the table. Uh, I don't. I think we have to be very careful in in acquiescing what we bring by trying to take that seat. And from your perspective, what would you say it is that a chaplain brings that is unique from another staff officer or, uh, you know, uh, some of the help you might be able to get at the, at the TMC or something like that? What is it that the chaplain brings that is unique and valued? Well, it, it's, <laughs> it's the best job in the army. I mean, and, and I think one of the many things that makes it the best job in the Army is it is, it is very unique, uh, being a chaplain. It is a very unique thing. Um, what we bring or what we're capable of bringing or the expectation of what we're capable of bringing uh, is, is a big part of what makes it unique. Uh, you know uh, we are... We are sometimes used, right or wrong, we are sometimes used as almost quasi-psychologists. Uh, we are used as counselors. We, we can go from sitting with a soldier whose life just fell apart to sitting with another soldier who's lost a loved one to advising a commander on what right looks like, on anything from, well, sir, you know, you, you might reconsider doing this or reconsider this policy to sir that would be inconsistent with the law of land warfare to any number of things and 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 I think you have to be that that jack of all trades and you got to master quite a few or at least try to master you have to try to master as many of them as you can uh, that's a challenge uh, that's a personal challenge you know um, we bring, I remember uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Odom was his name. He was our 140th Cav, and they didn't have a chaplain. We were at JRTC, and we were kind of co-located with their unit, and so I was doing the area, I was doing covering both units, and I walked in, introduced myself, and, you know, sir, when are your staff meetings, and I'll be there, I'm your chaplain, I'm this and that, and I'll cover you until we get the backfill. 
And he looked at me and he said, well, chaplain, what can you give me that I can't get from the psychologist or one of the social workers? And, uh, or, or, and, and he added, or that I can do myself. And I said, well, sir, you're, you're behind the pulpit on Sunday. I'll see you there. And, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, so besides that, and I said, well, sir, um, how many of those psychologists endure what we do? How many of those inflax endure what we endure? Uh, how, many, how many of them have you seen on that jump? Um, I think maybe because we are in the right, because we love those soldiers so much, because we, we see them as ours. Not like they're our kids, but we're somehow responsible for them nonetheless. And, and uh, I think that's a challenge. That's a, a personal challenge. How good can you be at it? How much ministry can you provide? How much can you serve? Um, yeah, and trying to answer that question is probably the biggest challenge we're going to have. Well, sir, I really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down and and to talk to me today. Um, when I approached Chaplain Tripp about my idea for this podcast, he was very supportive and and very enthusiastic of it. Uh, and so, sir, I appreciate you uh, going under the gun and 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 being one of my having a conversation with me this my, afternoon. My pleasure, and my honor. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like what you hear, uh, what you can do for us is just share it with your friends, your family, share it on social media so that other people can learn a little bit more about what it is the chaplains do and, and what chaplains bring to the table, as Chaplain Tripp said. Uh, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud by searching Chaplain Stories or on iTunes by searching Chaplain Stories. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and check back again soon for another Chaplain Story.